0: You are listening to an Enoch Pratt-Free Library podcast. Your journey.
1: Your journey. Your, Your journey. journey. Your journey starts here. Here. We're
2: going live on Facebook and we're starting the webinar in Zoom. So we're just letting Facebook connect. Thank you everyone so much for joining us this evening. We're letting our Facebook stream and Zoom stream connect. So we will get started in just a moment. And we are connected. Take it away, Emma.
0: Thank you so much, Tracy. Um, and thank you to everyone at the Pratt Library, including Heidi, of course, who is here with us tonight and I'll hand it off to you in just a moment. Uh, my name is Emma Snyder. I'm the owner of the Ivy Bookshop, and it is my uh, true pleasure to be here this evening to welcome everyone and just to say hello from the Ivy as a partner with the Pratt um, and uh, hope the book supplier. So when I zip off tonight, I'll place a link to Anthony Ray Hinton's book um, in the chat function and would really encourage everyone uh, to purchase it. Yeah, exactly. Jenny is waving a copy. The sun does shine. Uh, Because I'm here, of course, to welcome you for the Brown Lecture Series, Anthony Ray Hinton, The Sun Does Shine, How I Found Life and Freedom on Death Row, in conversation with Jenny Egan, a public defender here in Baltimore. Um, We at the Ivy are always uh, incredibly, we just feel generally fortunate to be uh, in partnership with the Pratt for these events. Um, When they were live and we could come and see you in person and hand physical books over to you, but also during this period of COVID uh, when of course we were all virtually in our living rooms, um, but still gathering for incredibly important conversations. And I think for us in a year that's been defined by isolation, we've just thought an enormous amount about community, what it means, how it functions, uh, why it's necessary. And as such, uh, we've thought about the places and the people that just mean a great deal to us at the Ivy, but also to the city of Baltimore. Um, And the Pratt, of course, is foremost among them. It's a a place that is um, not just a place to find books, but a driving force in our city that encourages reading and literacy and connection and engagement with ideas. Um, that cultivates the kind of conversations we're going to hear tonight. And I I just say all that because I think this book is incredibly important. And I was uh, running a a book club at the the Baltimore jail up until COVID struck, and we had to, of course, close it down. And so Anthony Ray Hinton's work and sort of his experiences, I think, mean a lot. And I would just really encourage people to read his story uh, and listen tonight. And just, um, I'm so... just incredibly appreciative of the Pratt for putting this together and for being the kind of institution it is. So Heidi Daniel, take it away, Uh, the remarkable Heidi Daniel. Thank you to everyone. Thank
2: you, Emma. Thank you so much. And let me just say, I really, for me and from all the staff, how much we appreciate the partnership we have with the Ivy Bookshop and all the conversations that the Ivy produces throughout our city and throughout our community and how much we appreciate partnering with you to create a city of readers Thinkers of compassionate, empathetic, and intelligent people. And I'm so proud of Baltimore and delighted to be here with you this evening. I'm Heidi Daniel, I'm the president and CEO of the Enoch Pratt Free Library. Um, And I want to thank Eddie C. and C. Sylvia Brown Foundation for bringing to us this very special virtual Brown Lecture Series. Uh, The foundation as well as all of our donors make free public programs like this possible for the city of Baltimore and now beyond via zoom. Certainly a very different kind of year for all of us, and we at the Pratt are working slowly and safely, hopefully by uh, to be reopening our libraries across Baltimore City earlier this month we begin we began computer appointments at um, three of our libraries. And as I said, hopefully we'll be able to continue that as we know that numbers are increasing in our city, but we want to welcome you back in and we want to provide these important services. In addition, sidewalk service, a contact free way to pick up library materials is available at 14 of our locations as is our book by mail where you can get books mailed to your home. We've also moved all of our programming onto the Pratt's virtual platforms. This Thursday, we'll be celebrating the opening of the Senator Barbara A. Mikulski room at the Central Library with a special virtual program featuring the Senator in conversation with Ambassador Wendy Sherman. We hope you will join us. Now for tonight's event. Anthony Ray Hinton survived 30 years in Alabama's death row after he was wrongly convicted in a double murder. He wrote his story from conviction to exoneration in his memoir, The Sun Does Shine, How I Found Life and Freedom on Death Row. This book is a New York Times bestseller, was one of Oprah's book club selections, and if you haven't read it yet, please buy it from the Ivy or check it out from the Pratt. Tonight, he is in conversation with Baltimore City juvenile public defender, Jenny Egan. Please join me in welcoming Anthony Ray Hinton and Jenny Egan. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you Mr. Hinton for joining
1: Thank us you. in Baltimore tonight.
3: Pleasure to be here. How's the day treating you so far? Well, the day's been kind of long, but I'm um, hanging in there. All right. We'll try to get we'll
1: try to get a good conversation going.
3: We good. We good. So,
1: one of the things um, that struck me so much in your book was that um, you witnessed some unspeakable horror during your time on on death row. You witnessed the murder, the state-sanctioned murder of 54 uh, men and one woman done in in the name of the people. I wonder if you could share with us um, and share with some of the people on the call the ritual that the um, death row inmates developed to mark the passing of people who were taken to death row, something that I've taken to calling the, the symphony of the condemned. Uh, and what you did to mark uh, the passing of of those 55 lives that you saw taken.
3: Well, you know, uh, when uh, whatever inmate, once they get word that they've been given an execution date, I think there's nothing more cruel than to tell a man that in 30 days, 90 days, you're gonna die and for that 30 or 90 days, that man thinks about nothing but that day. And so all of us uh, would try our best to uh, tell him to stop thinking about it Um uh, someone going to come along and uh, he going to get a stay or just try to be there as a family and support him as best as we could. And when they would take him to the death chamber, uh, we didn't know whether he had family members, whether he had developed friendship with someone and that friendship would cause them to come to the prison and watch uh, that person being put to death. And all we could do was beat on the balls but we beat it so loud that we know that he could hear us. <clears throat> Excuse me. And that was a sign and say, hey, we with you until the very end. And when they execute you, the last sound we want you to hear is we want you to hear our voice, but it won't be a voice of talking, it will be a voice of sounds of cups and rallying as though the world is coming to an end. And we did that because when you go to death row, people say you've done some of the most horrible thing in the world and we wanted that person to know we didn't care whether you was innocent we don't care whether you was guilty we wanted you to know that you still is our brother we still love you and we sorry to see you go but we want you to go knowing that somebody loved you and that was our way of just passing the love to to that person and Oh, we would get word from some of the guards that was in the execution chamber. He smiled when he heard y'all begin to beat. And he would say, my brothers, is are still with me. And I can only imagine what that must have felt like and gave him the strength that, okay, this is the end, uh, but they are still with me. And so we tried our best to comfort in any way we could, uh, leading up to the execution we would take time out and talk to one another. We would uh, share whatever we had with one another. Death Row is a place where people don't realize that you become a family because you have 365 days. You don't see anyone else unless it's a lawyer. Some other men didn't get visit from anyone. And so you become all they know. And so we just came together at the time of the worst time that is and say, hey, going to be okay and we would try to at least a lot of us would say hey think about this tomorrow you will be in heaven guess what you ain't got to worry about nothing no more and one day we will see each other again and we just try to comfort each other in that manner
1: one thing you mentioned was take your mind off of things and, and so much of your book is talking about how you had to take your mind off of the threat of death, right? You weren't sentenced to prison. You were sentenced to death. Um, And I am just enthralled by how amazing your imagination is (laughs) and how amazing your imagination was. Was it that robust before you went to prison and before you were forced to find that strength? Were you always that imaginative?
3: It was uh, not to that extreme, but I, I, I would love to believe that I had as they would say, years of practice. My mom would, would say, uh, being the baby of the family, everybody had <clears throat> would be gone and I'm here by myself. And my mom would say, go outside and play. And I would say, with who? And she would say, by yourself. And so as coming up, I would go outside and I would get a stick and I would pretend that it was a, like a gun or something that I would play cowboys and Indian. One moment I was a cowboy, the next moment I was an Indian. So I've always had this uh, imagination uh, that I can be and whoever I wanted to be. And I would sit outside and uh, pretend I was a king or something. And uh, I owned the world and uh, everything that other people wanted, they had to come to me. So I always had this imagination, but never did I see it and need it as much as I did it when I got to that pro. Uh, I hope for those that are listening, I was there for something I didn't do. And I had to somehow find a way to survive. And I truly believe that one day someone would say, hey, the Hinton case, this man is innocent. We need to go back and check on him. And until then, I needed to survive until someone came along and said, hey, I believe this man is innocent. And so I created a world that I could live in. When you go to death row, the world that you once knew, you might as well get it out of your mind because you cannot do the time when your mind is somewhere else. You have to concentrate and focus on there, then and now, not the past. And so I never will forget the moment they put me in that 5x7, I looked at it and it was so small. And the first thing I did was sit on this little bunk bed that was too small for me. And I told my mind, I need you to make this cell as big as you can. I need you to do this for me. And I won't sit here to try to boost it up, I don't know when. Uh, I began to accept the fact that this sale seemed to be larger than what it was when I first came in, but it did. The second thing I told my mind to do was, I need you to erase the world that I once knew. All of that is to pass. I need to create a new world. One morning, one day, one night, whenever it was, I just started thinking about who I was and what I was. And I thought about all the people in the world that I would love to see. And for whatever reason, as I stated in my book, I wanted to see Queen Elizabeth. Now, I haven't figured that one out yet, but in my mind, I, I, I imagined going to the palace and telling the guard that I was there to see the queen. Uh, once I realized that I really could challenge my mind to do and sit down and conversate with whoever I wanted to see, I did something next that I, at 12, I said I would, never would do, and that is get married. And I didn't just marry any random somebody. I married two no, of them. No, not women. at all. So <laughs> <laughs> nope. I married two of the most beautiful women that I think uh, God ever created, which was uh, Halle Berry and Sandra Bullock.
1: Although and, both are your ex-wives now, I understand. Right? Yes. Your divorce oh, from both exactly.
3: Okay, yeah. Oh, and, and, and I'm happy to say that I stayed married to uh, Halle Berry for 15 years and I stayed married to uh, Sonja Bullock for about 12 years. And so uh, beautiful marriage. But in the same token, I want the listener to understand something. Not one time did I use my mind for anything negative or anything vulgar. I used it, I wanted a conversation with a female and being around uh, men for 365 days year after year after year. I wanted in my own mind to have a warm perspective on things. And that's what I used uh, my mind for. Uh, I played basketball for the pathetic New York Knicks. and When I played basketball with them in my mind, we won the championship five straight years. I played baseball with my beloved Yankees. Uh, we already had 27 championship five years straight. We won five more championships, but I played tennis against some of the greatest tennis players in the world, Rafael and Andy Roddick, and all. And I won Wimbledon five straight years. And I won it. And the saddest thing that I, to this day, I haven't received my Rolex watch for winning Wimbledon. Right. But yes, <laughs> and, but I, 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 I try to convince people that your mind, can take you anywhere you wanted to go. And I just used mine as an escape. The prison couldn't do a thing about me escaping in my mind. I was never there. The food that they brought me, I would tell my mind that these are the best eggs that anyone could ever prepare. The meat was the best steak that I ever had the privilege of eating in my life. And the food is harboring in prison, anybody will tell you, in Alabama at least. And so I just made a world where I didn't complain, but I made a world that I was happy and everything was going my way. I wanted to be in this world where everything is wonderful. I didn't think about death row. I didn't think about being executed. I just lived every day to the fullness of my life. and. I drove some of the most expensive, beautiful cars you could ever drive, and what I loved about it, I didn't have to pay not one note uh, for the car.
1: (laughs) So, Uh, uh, yeah, another (laughs) thing that sustained you or sustained that imagination was also books. Why did you Why did you start a book club on death row?
3: I started a book club after listening to the men that uh, had dropped out of school at seventh and eighth grade. I, I realized that these men could be here for lack of education. Uh, I realized that these men could be here because no one took the time out and showed them the power of a book. And so I wanted 14 men to be in my book club, uh, but the warden would only allow me six men plus myself, which made seven. And I had to convince him because like most warden, uh, when you actually do something, he wanted to know what we was trying to, pull over his head. And I had to convince him, Warden, we're not trying to pull anything. Uh, instead of just sending these sales, tearing up the sale, I know what books can do for you. All of asking you is to give me an opportunity. And then he wanted to know who was going to buy the book. And I told him I would get my best friend, Lester, to just send me the books. And I told him I would have the book sent to him where he could check for country band. And once he checked, send them to me and I would give them to the man that Uh, I had selected to be in my book club. Finally, he agreed, we did it and everything went great. And I had a man in my book club that was a Ku Klux Klux transfer. Mm -hmm. And I wanted him in this book club specifically because I wanted him to understand that the world was nothing like your father, your mother, and your community had told you it was. Uh, I wanted him to see that black people Was doctors, writers, authors, or whatever. And so, introducing him, the first book we read was by James Baldwin, Go Tell It on the Mountain. And I promise you that this man read James Baldwin, Go Tell It on the Mountain. He came back to discuss uh, James Baldwin's book. He had written out six pages back and back front of what he thought this book, and what James Baldwin was telling about this book. And I knew then, from him being brought up as a Klan's member to read a Black author book and for him to have this joy that he uh, was having by reading this book, I knew then what I've always knew, that books is powerful. And I understand that given uh, the right books for people to learn and to read uh, it's a tremendous help and it just sustained us It got us through. Uh, when they left from discussing the book in the law library, they would go back to the cell and you could hear them discussing the book to the man next door to him. Man, you should read this book. James Bones is in New York City and he he don't believe, he believed he have a right to do this and a right to that. See, it fitted uh, the Klansman better than anyone because of the way he was brought up and the way that he felt that we shouldn't as black men shouldn't have a right to do this or that. And so that's why I chose that book. Uh, other books I chose was always books that I thought dealt with racism in a way. Uh, I would truly believe that when you read, you should read something that can connect with you as a human being. And once you can find a book that connect with you in your life, then you can branch off to other and understand other people. And so that's uh, what I did. I just think uh, every prison, as I have stated before, should, we as citizens should demand that every man be given the opportunity to to read books if that's what they choose to read uh, in prison.
1: Uh, you mentioned race, which is such a huge part of what happened to you, right? Um, your mm-hmm. prosecution, your persecution uh, was based in racism, and um, you had many experiences in, in prison, uh, including with a, a Klansman who you befriended that are about race. Uh, but too many white Americans like to think that those those sorts of prosecutions are in the past, right? But you weren't prosecuted mm-hmm. in the 30s, 40s, not the 60s or 70s. You were prosecuted in the mid-1980s when most of the people watching this were alive. Yes. And there, are, what happened to you is happening to people all over the United States, including in Maryland today. Yes. What, I, I, what, I, I, yeah. what do you think we should be doing? What do you think we oh. should be fighting uh, to, to make sure it doesn't happen?
3: Well, um, I think the... The way that you put a stop to it is you keep a close eye on the prosecutor. You try to uh, learn as much as you can how many men or women that they have sent to death row. If you can, try to find out how many are uh, been exonerated on the, uh, his watch or her watch. And I think you go to the poll and you remove those people that is, don't really care about sending innocent people to, to death row. Uh, the sad thing that I find even in now, every day in this country, innocent men and women goes to death row in this country. And I think that goes to, to death row because we as society have taken the attitude that if you was arrested, you must have done something. And you deserve whatever you get. And I was accused, I'm gonna use my own case, I was accused of killing two restaurant managers. No evidence, no anything. Uh, But what they did have was the fact that I was born black and poor. What they did have was evidence that I didn't have the finance to hire a decent lawyer. And in Alabama, we don't have a public defender. So I was on the mercy of the court and the court gave me exactly a lawyer that did exactly enough to make it legal. And so when I tell people in my story that we have a system that treats you better if you're rich and guilty, opposed to if you're poor and innocent, I can say that because that is me. I didn't have the money to hire a good lawyer. And so uh, there's an old saying in America, you get what you pay for. I didn't pay for anything and believe me, I didn't get anything. And uh, the state of Alabama, had every intention to execute me, would have executed me, had it not been for Equal Justice Initiative in Montgomery, Alabama, under the leadership and guidance of Brian Stevenson, who came and uh, took my case uh, after I had been there about 14 to 15 years and worked 16 diligent years to uh, prove that I was innocent. And that's another thing. Death penalty cases is hard and it takes a long time. And... People say, well, what takes so long? I I think you shouldn't sit there that long. Well, there was a talk at one time that six years was enough to sit on death row. Either you prove you're innocent in six years or you be executed. Uh, That is the mortality that I want to change. I don't care if you have to sit there 40 years because again, once we execute an innocent person and we find out the next morning, the next day or the hour later, what do we do then? Do we say we sorry? Why are we in such a big hurry to execute someone when we know that we have a system that is, I won't say broken, a system that is designed to do exactly the way it do. And I think that society need to stop and start learning uh, what the system is all about. Don't wait to get in a position like I did to realize that this system that we have is not fair, it's not justice, It's for those that are trying to make a mark for themselves. You know, most prosecutors, they know from the beginning whether a person is innocent or guilty. But the more conviction they get, then, if you notice, they run for judge. I want to tell you a little quick little story about a judge here in Alabama. He used to, every six years when it was re-election time, he would say, I sent more men and women to death row than any judge in the state of Alabama. And the voters would re-elect him every time. But what he didn't tell the voters that out of every man and woman that he sent to their row, at least seven of those men have been proven to be innocent. And that's the riddle. We listen at what the politicians tell us and we believe them instead of checking them on, instead of doing our homework. We live in a time now with modern technology that we should be able to pretty much find out Just about anything that we want to. And I promise you, there's men and women all over this country tonight is saying if only I could find a good lawyer that would be willing to take my case, they could prove my innocence. I thank God every day that Brian Stevenson and Equal Justice came in my life or took my case. To this day, I haven't asked them what it costs, but to me, to see the smile that they gave me when I was finally released to me told me it didn't matter what it costs this is what we do and this is why we do it because of men like you that don't have the money to hire good lawyers and we have to come in behind them and try to free and I I, I, I have to tell you which you probably already know that's probably one of the hardest things, is to go behind someone else mm-hmm. and try to undo what they should have done and we have a lawyer in, in this country that uh, we call it timely barred, uh, if that lawyer didn't bring it up at a certain time, it could be that they could prove that you innocent, but that judge will look at you and say, "Hey, I'm sorry, but it's timely barred it wasn't brought up in time, and I just think when we're dealing with the death penalty, nothing should be timely barred. that person should be always given the opportunity to prove his or her innocence and I don't understand that law but that's a law that I would love to try and help get changed where it's not time to it. And I understand that the prosecution would argue well, if you do that, then you're giving them uh, the chance to just prolong this case or whatever. But shouldn't America want that person given every opportunity to prove his innocence? Because they kills in your name. They kills in your name. And I don't believe any person tonight, whether you for the death penalty, want any innocent person to be killed in their name. And the only way that we would never kill another innocent person is that we do away with the death penalty.
1: You uh, had such a range of experience with lawyers, mostly really bad, um, including uh, the defense attorney appointed to you at your original trial you later found out was friends with the prosecutor. The prosecutor in your case, Bob McGregor, never faced any professional consequences for his participation in your prosecution or the prosecution of other innocent uh, um, people, even though he was found to have uh, used racially discriminatory juries or to discriminate against black people on juries. Given that you believe the system is designed exactly as it was supposed to, and that that system is designed uh, to imprison Black people uh, as a a form, well, I don't even want to say that. Uh, Let me just say, given that it's designed to imprison Black people, how do we fight for change when that is the system that we have in place?
3: We fight for changes when, first, when we educate ourselves. And you have to really educate yourself on a system that if you're not educated, uh, you can be very uh, food by Or, uh, Second, I think you fight for changes by going to the ballot, uh, to the poll and vote when there's uh, election. Uh, and that's how you bring about changes. And then I think we should start holding our prosecutors uh, accountable. For every time they send an innocent person to prison we don't because we are comfortable as long as it's not us we okay with it and i think that's a dangerous territory that all of us i never thought that i would go to death row never alone spend 30 years for a crime i didn't commit because i was brought up to believe that the system uh, was fair i was brought up to believe that the system will not bother you if you haven't done anything and i think In this day and age, once again, someone went to death row this morning that is truly innocent because this system is designed to sell them. What what we have and people would have you to believe that we're dealing with mass incarceration, I believe is just a new form of slavery. And somebody is getting 50 rich off of sending men and women to prison. Uh, We privatize our uh, inmates nowadays and we always put the burden on the poor. Oh, uh, and I just think we have for those of us that wants to fight for true justice. We have to come together, find the best way to put people in office and I as, as a prosec- I mean, as a defense attorney yourself. Uh, you go in the court. That person that you represent by law, by Constitution, have a right to an attorney to, but he also and she have a right to a fair trial or uh, I think you cannot go in the courtroom and have a bad day because you are the defense attorney. The prosecutor can go in there and have a bad day, but he can recover or she can recover from their bad day. You can't. And I think we need to make it fair. Uh, For those that don't know and you you know, uh, the Supreme Court have given the prosecutor in every state in America a blank check to do whatever they please. You can't sue them. You can't... uh, Go to the court and have them uh, barred. You can't have them reprimanded or anything because they represent the people. Now, I ask the people do you want someone to represent you that willingly is putting men and women in prison? Do you really want that? Because when you put the wrong person in prison, the person that is actually doing the crime is still out there committing the crime. We should all demand that if you don't have enough evidence, if you don't have uh, what you need to convict and convict on truth, leave the, the case open. And so right now, 30 35 years later, the person that actually committed the crime that I was convicted of have not been brought to justice. And I'm going to be honest with you, they don't want them brought to justice because then it will show the world that we do make mistakes. We do send innocent men and women to prison. And so I just think we got to uh, go and keep going to the polls and vote. I think we got to educate ourselves more now than ever. And we got to stop hanging on to this uh, Mayberry theory uh, and uh, Perry Mason that no one goes to prison uh, if they're innocent. Uh, I promise you, they go every day. I can look at myself and say, I know for a fact they go. And so let's do those two things. And then if we could come up with other ways to make sure that we can turn this system around, make it work for the good of everybody, then ain't nobody gonna be angry about that. Uh, But the way it worked now, it's not in uh, any of our favor.
1: Yeah, when you said that, it reminds me of a local case. Uh, Keith Davis Jr. is a man who's about to face his fifth trial uh, for a murder that our uh, our office represents him and and that he maintains he did not commit, and yet they've tried yeah. him. Fi- it's going to be a fifth separate time that he's been tried. Uh, th- the key in his case is ballistic evidence, which was similar to your case. It only relied on the testimony of firearms examiners who said that the bullets uh, for two murders matched the uh, the gun they recovered from your the bottom of your mom's closet that hadn't been fired in years. My question for you is, in the book, you tell the story of when your firearms examiner was being cross-examined at trial, and it came out that he actually was partially blind? I correct? Yes, yeah.
3: He was blind in one eye, yes.
1: Um, I, I hate to sound so skeptical, but do, do you really think, Pachank, uh, your defense attorney had no idea of his challenges or, or of, of how limited an expert he was? Or do you think he was aware and limited by funds to only hire him
3: oh he was aware well let me uh, say this the defense attorney that the judge appointed me was a great defense attorney Mm -hmm. but at the same time he was racist at the same time he was about money or i know when he was given the case the first thing came out of his mouth was I did not go to law school to do pro bono work. That told me right then, this man here is about getting paid. And in the state of Alabama, they only give you $1,000 per case. And so the second thing came out of his mouth was that when I told him that I was innocent, he said, the problem with that statement is all of y'all is always doing something and then saying you didn't do it. Well, that told me that he didn't believe in me. Uh, and so he went out the very last minute and got him. it was as though he went outside and said, hey, do anyone know anything about ballistics? <laughs> yeah. Uh, pretty much just called out to a crowd. And somebody said, well, I do. And he said, come on, i need you to go in the courtroom and testify. And ask yourself, who would hire a ballisted expert that is blind in one eye? And at the time of my trial, you had to look through two, uh, lens microscope at that particular time and even when he got on the witness stand i I say this not to for anyone to pat me on the back i say this with all honesty i didn't cry for myself i cried for my ballistic expert because once he got on the stand the district attorney bob mcgregory ate him up and spit him out he asked that man How many eyes do you have? And he said, one. And Bob McGregory took that, belittered this man just in order so he could get a conviction. And I think there's a way to do anything. He didn't have to put that man on display in the manner that he did. But this is what you get when I said, if you don't have the money, to hire decent defense, no lawyer, no lawyer in their right mind would have went out and got a one-eyed ballistic expert. No lawyer would have went out at the last moment and just got an expert to come in and justify. And then this lawyer, when he went to the ballistic expert to, uh, I mean, facilitated to test the bullet, he stated that he couldn't see the bullet. All he could see was his finger. So he told the lawyer that before trial. That lawyer then should have said, Your Honor, the expert that I have couldn't do this and there's no way I can put him on the stand because once we put him on the stand, his credibility is shot, they call him a one eyed Charleston who will come in the courtroom and say anything for $50 and so I cried for that man because that man was trying to help me, and I needed someone to help me. But I needed a qualified, a listed expert. And so when Brian Stevenson came along and uh, went out and hired three other world-renowned known experts who testified only for the prosecution, but they was willing to come to Alabama test the bullets. And they said they would tell exactly what the bullets are show. If the bullet point that they matched my mother's gun, they was going to say that. If it didn't, they would stand up and say they didn't match. And when they did the examination, all three of them at different time came to the conclusion, these bullets don't come close to match. And they did something that I didn't like and didn't know until I was released. They tried to make the, the, the gun. Uh, match the bullets and but they couldn't and it goes to the credibility that what type of lawyer we have in this country that would go and just do enough to make it legal, don't lose no sleep over putting an innocent man in prison uh, and I have to say this I was done that way simply because of the color of my skin uh, the prosecutor knew that I wasn't the man that had committed the crime uh, in fact I was arrested for other charges. And once they found out that I was at work, they changed the old charges to capital murder. And uh, the prosecutor, Bart Mcgregor, uh, uh, said out loud, just maybe a little louder than he uh, intended to, once I was convicted, uh, he said, we didn't get the right nigger today, but at least we got a nigger off the street. And so that is the mentality that we have even to this day. And all of us, every citizen in this country, should demand that you prosecute a person, but you prosecute with the understanding that if the evidence do not fit, let that person go home, back to their family, tell the victim family, for right now, we haven't found who did it, but we will not prosecute anyone uh, if they don't fit the crime of of evidence don't point to them. it hurts me when I see a defense attorney just take a case and not care about the client, not give them the best. I think every uh, defense attorney should go in the courtroom, fight for their client with everything, every fiber in their beam. And if they go home and they lose that case, be able to look yourself in the mirror and say, I gave Anthony Ray Hinton my best. And sometime in life, your best won't be good enough. And so you shake that off and you go back the next day and you give the next person your best. It just might be better. But when you're looking at money, when you're looking at race, when you're looking at, I don't care nothing about him or her, or they deserve to be locked up. They deserve to be on death row. This is what we have in this country. And that's not justice. And again, our goes back, that's the way the system is designed to do. Yeah.
1: I just wanna note the the prosecutor who said that horrendous racist thing went on to have a storied career, became a federal prosecutor, worked with yes. uh, MSNBC commentator, uh, Miss Vance, who was one of an, an Obama appointee to the U.S. Attorney's yes. o- Office. Uh, th- these people are not gone. These people are still in yeah. power and on the bench in Alabama. I say and, that, and it, yeah, this. yeah. Oh, and not oh, just Alabama, are, everywhere.
3: No. <laughs> Yeah. Well, these these are the people that make policy. These are the people that sit back and goes to the United States Supreme Court to get more power. You know, as a defense attorney, you you well know, the audience may not know. You can put a person on, on the stand, and, 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 and if they lie, the prosecution can come back and charge them for perjury because they tried to help you win a case. He can or he or she can put a person on. They can lie. They can fabricate evidence. They can withhold evidence that could approve that person. There's nothing can can be done to that prosecutor. In fact, most times they get promoted for doing the wrong thing. And I often ask myself, what kind of system is that? That they withheld evidence. They kept a man in prison for 30 years knowing that this man was innocent and was going to execute it. And yet the state of Alabama have not apologized to me. The state of Alabama have not given me one penny to try and make my life whole again. The state of Alabama have not done anything but took 30 years of my life.
1: I just wanna close real quick with, with, a, with a question of, about that and that kind of explicit racism. So many white Americans are surprised or have expressed a surprise at the reemergence of blatantly racist symbols uh, and expressly racist sentiments in our political culture right now, um, but in some ways, I I, I I doubt that you're surprised. I I'm not surprised, and I wonder if you think that it is better or worse that those things are being explicitly said out loud, and what do you think we we as a people can be doing to counter it now?
3: Oh, oh, I, I I truly believe that in this day and age, uh, it is worst. And I think we all look for and believe in a system that we thought uh, racism didn't play a part when you go into the courtroom. You have a victim family, you have a a person that you say is the person that did it. Never in my wildest dream that I really believe that race played a part in in seeking justice. And so, as long as we have this race war that seems to be or going on from our politicians, it should make every one of us that believe that race should never play a part in who get convicted and who goes to prison. We have to really get up and fight. We have to fight day and night. We have to do and come together and think about what all we can do. And I promise you, and I keep saying this because it's so important, there's nothing I think we can do more than put those people out of a job. And when you go to the ballot box, you go to the ballot box and you vote for truth, you vote for justice, you vote for fairness. And that's what you do. And that's the only way that I think we're gonna get anywhere because, you know, uh, I've been scarred now for life. I try to get up every morning with this wound and. Uh, to be a productive citizen I just don't understand how we live in a system that it took 30 years to say something match or didn't match and I cannot understand and cannot come to grips with the fact that no one in the state of Alabama have had the decency to say Mr. Hinton we sorry I cannot understand how is it that we can say we have the best judicial system in the world. And for those that is listening and for those that is saying tonight, well, the system worked, you didn't get executed. I say to them that the system didn't work, had the system worked, I never would have went to death row in the first place. And that's what I want them to think about tonight. Yeah.
1: So I'm gonna turn and start asking you some questions from the audience, if that's okay with you. Yes, Uh, ma'am. The first question I'm going to start with is from uh, Tracy O'Hearn. She asks, "How the isolation of COVID has affected you? Uh, given that you were isolated for so long, has this pandemic uh, been harder for you th- than than given given your previous situation and given how long you were incarcerated?"
3: Uh, it helps. Uh, you know, I was locked up for thirty years, as you know, and when I came home, uh, being able to go to work, being able to travel and speak to various colleges, uh, I didn't have time to just sit down and think about uh, being locked up or being at home locked up. And I had what I would call uh, a breakdown uh, because I was so used to going and just coming home or uh, not thinking about it. And so I think it finally caught up with me and. I found myself just crying like a baby. Uh, and it has scarred me mentally as well as physically in a sense that I don't think no one would ever be able to understand. Uh, but I try my best to cope with it. Uh, being locked up for 30 years, I didn't have a choice. Being here, I still could have went outside and uh, went to stores, but I stayed in because I didn't want to catch it, nor did I want to give it to anybody. And so I had to find another way. And once again, I found books as my savior because I didn't, uh, nothing was on TV but reruns. And I probably had (laughs) watched all the reruns. And so uh, I began to uh, read and uh, I always read my Bible and I always find something new. So that's how I was able to cope with it.
1: That's another question from Kathleen Sack. She asks, um, you know, outside of book club, what books have you been reading and are you reading anything uh, lately that you loved or that you think people should know about or that you'd like to share?
3: Uh, You know, uh, of course, the book that I've read uh, by my lawyer, by my friend, by my brother, (laughs) Brian Stevenson, Just Mercy, Oh, I recommend that book to everyone to get a glimpse in at the uh, fair justice system. He points it out so very well in his book about a system uh, that treats you better if you're rich and guilty. Uh, that book and, of course, uh, I, my number one book that I would tell somebody to read just a little bit of it every day is the Bible. Uh, just read it. It gives you strength where you're weak. It gives you faith where there's doubt. It gives you understanding where there's confusion. So just read it. Uh, I don't, I haven't had the opportunity to just read like I, I did when I was in prison. Yeah. Uh, and I understand, you know, working at EJI and then coming home, uh, I normally just cook something, take a shower and then go to bed to get up to go work the next morning, but uh, I've had the pleasure uh, of just trying to read a different book, The Soul of a Man and uh, God is Good, uh, different books that uh, sometimes people send me in the the office and I got a book today, as a matter of fact, and so I'm going to try my best to uh, take time out and try to get back on that path. Or reading uh, as many as books as I possibly can.
1: So some folks wanna. Uh, somebody asked where you live, but I know where you live, and I know who you live next door to. <laughs> so my question for you is: Although I know Lester uh, is your best friend, who uh, uh, just supported you in in ways that um, I, I <laughs> that can't be described, right? That cannot be fully described. My question is how can you stay living in Alabama knowing what that state did to you? Uh, And why did you choose to return home the way that you did?
3: Well, first, uh, let me say, this is the place that I was born. And I have stated earlier that the state of Alabama took 30 years of my, my life. And that's all I'm going to give the state of Alabama. And I felt that if I moved, I couldn't move with a good country because I would feel as though they were running me off and I refused to let them run me off. I couldn't move to another state trying to avoid racism because racism is in every state in America. So why not stay here in Alabama and fight racism and try to make changes and try to make not just my life better, but the other generation life is better as well. and. My mom had purchased a home, which when I came home, it was an old regular house that was just about to fall down. And I wanted to pump life into that house because it meant so much to my mom. And I did that, and I tried to do it to make it look decent. And I often say it's not much, but I promise you if you ever knock or ring the doorbell, you are welcome in my home at any time. And that goes for anybody. You come in peace and I promise you, or uh, we will find something to eat and we can sit and laugh. But uh, I stays in Alabama because I feel that I'm needed in Alabama, not just uh, for a purpose of just being in Alabama, but I just cannot bring myself to grip to, to make anyone think, oh, they ran him out of Alabama. No, I have just as much right to live in Alabama as anyone else. And let me say this in closing. When it comes to white, some of the best white people I ever met live right here in Alabama. And so for those that uh, believe in fairness, I stay with for them as well. And I say to them, thank you for treating me as a human being. Uh, And so I'm gonna be here until God calls me home.
1: Do you have any policy recommendations uh, to reduce the use of the death penalty?:
3: I just think we should uh, outlaw the death penalty period due to the fact of uh, extremely racism is uh, due to the fact that you don't uh, have most people in prison is poor, and those that are even on death row are even poor. Uh, and I just think that it solved nothing. You know, 54 men and women was executed while I was on death row. Uh, the murder rate didn't go down. And you would have people say, well, if you kill them, enough." but believe me, the news made sure that you know that someone's going to be executed. And at the same time that someone was executed, somebody else was being murdered. I think we got to change the narrative and be, begin to understand that we need to teach and preach and Try to show love more to one another, and we would uh, do away with uh, murder. And I think one of the reason that uh, we have murders because people don't want to be, uh, let me say, identified. And I think, like Kansas, City, I know for uh, since Kansas City do not have uh, the death penalty, their murder rate is is lower. And I found out that. Uh, states that do not have the death penalty, they murder rate is much lower and perhaps uh, all of these southern states need to start looking at uh, uh, Life without parole and why are we so eager to kill because I think We kill and we have a, a blood thirst for killing and therefore we don't know uh, what it does for Children that watch and here and so I think we need to change that narrative and start saying hey, you know what? Let's do away with the death penalty, and let's try to uh, have a system that is fair, a system that's put you in prison. If you want to be there for the rest of your life, that's on you, but we will not kill you. And so I just think policy needs to be made where we just need to just do away with it. And for those of your listeners, every time we execute a person in Alabama, it costs over $2 million. Imagine what we could do with that money. If we did away with the oh. death penalty, we could build better school, we could put computers in school, we could give these kids a decent head start to be successful in life. Uh, I promise you the death penalty to no problem. It only create another problem. And as free thinkers and free society, we need to start thinking in a form of let's do better. Let's stop this and let's start doing what is right.
1: Um, one of the questions is uh, whether or not Alabama compensated you uh, for your wrongful conviction in 20, 30 years of imprisonment.
3: Uh, sorry to say to will over that question, the answer is no. Not only did the state of Alabama not compensate me for 30 years, the state of Alabama have yet to apologize to me for s- for 30 years. They haven't said not one time Mr. Hampton was sorry. And so I am left to fight uh, and try to make a, a living uh, the best I can. And nothing that the state of Alabama have done to try and make it uh, pleasant for me. You know, I, I, I say this with no foreign attendant. I'm still paying for 30 years. I was not allowed uh, dental care in the, in the prison because they have a policy that since you're going to be executed, uh, why would we fix your teeth? Why would we uh, spend any money to for health-wise? And so I came home and my mouth was just tore up and I had to somehow dig and scrap And I had to pay over $20,000 to try and get my top teeth where I could eat. And I'm still working on the bottom. And so people don't realize. And they think when you go to prison, everything is free. I only can speak of Alabama prison. I only can speak about death row. But I promise you, for 30 years, I did not see a dentist for 30 years. No one cared whether my teeth were good or bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I'm still having to, uh, go to the dentist and try to do let them try to do what 30 years did to me. And I'm having to pay for that out of my pocket. And so, uh, with the state of Alabama not uh, compensating me, uh, that set me back even, uh, further. And so I'm, you know, I'm doing the best that I can. And I yes. just thank God to be honest, that I can go and try to, uh, make my mouth healthy, and then I would love to say this, if you don't have a healthy mouth, then your body is not healthy. And so I want to be healthy, but I want my mouth to be healthy as well.
1: Yeah. Um, another question from the audience was whether or not you, Alabama allows um, ex uh, people who have been convicted of felonies to vote and whether or not you were disenfranchised. Uh, and if you were able to vote, how did it feel to vote the first time?
3: Oh, uh, it was lovely to vote. I had to uh, go in. Uh, this was the first time I ever voted for a president. Uh, when I got out, we had what they call a, a Senate runoff between uh, Doug Jones and uh, Roy Moore. And uh, I was able to cast the vote. Then, but when I went goes into the booth, I vote for my mother as well because she came up in a time where she couldn't vote due to the uh, her skin. Uh, I voted for all the men and women that uh, was lynched because they wanted to vote and didn't have a right. Uh, And so when I go in that booth, it gives me uh, the freedom to say, "Hey, my vote count. My vote means something." And I don't vote uh, strictly Democrat, I vote for Republican if that Republican uh, says the things and uh, that I want to hear and I watch them very closely once they get in office. And if you don't get in there and do the will of the people, you have lost my vote the next time your time is up, I'm gonna try to get you out of office and hopefully keep voting for someone that will get in there and do for the will of the people. because. I've learned that politicians think that we work for them. We got to send them a message. You work for us. We put you in office and we will get you out of office. And so um, voting was like a, a peppermint patty, cool and refreshing. <laughs> and, and so I just, <laughs> just love the fact that I was able to go in there and vote and hopefully make change. Uh, I can't wait. Uh, and that's what it's all about is voting to make changes.
1: Thank you so much, Mr. Hinton, for allowing me to have this conversation with you. Your book um, is extremely important for me. Uh, It was profoundly moving and I've recommended it and and shared it with many of the young people I've represented who are currently incarcerated uh, and being held away from their families tonight. I just wanted to close really quickly as a man who loves his mother uh, and was dedicated to her I would love if you could close our evening with just telling us one good story about your mom or one thing you remember about her so we can hold her in our hearts uh, tonight before we finish and close.
3: Um, My mother was a lady of conviction. My mom believed that no child should have a say so, just do what you're told. But my mom was a mother for everybody. She loved everybody and when I say everybody, Uh, She didn't look at the color of your skin. My mom believed that we all of God's children and we should always learn to love for one another. And my mom used to always tell me that you are not responsible for how people treat you, but you are responsible for how you treat others. And I think about all the time that my mom used to drop little nuggets on me to prepare me for a life of uncertainty and never did he come into play as when I was in prison. And my mom always told me, always look to God, but he never failed you. He may not come when you want him, but I promise you, he's always on time. And God came and delivered me for 30 years, but I must tell you in your orders, the day that I see him, I wanna know what took him so long to come get me. And so I
1: will lead you to that. that. A fair question, if there's ever been one. Thank you so Order. much, Mr. <laughs> Mr. Hinton. I'd like to thank the Pratt Library and the Ivy Bookshop and all of our um, participants for listening to the conversation and joining us today. Mr. Hinton, you're an incredible individual um, and I'm just so grateful for you and the work you are still doing at EJI to help other people uh, who are incarcerated and facing the death penalty. Thank
3: Thank you, you. and always remember, keep fighting for your clients, uh, believe in them, and be one of those lawyers that willing to give you all uh, those that can't uh, fight for themselves. And I promise you, if you go in that courtroom and give your all, when you go home, you'll be peace with yourself, and that's what's matter.
1: To my very last breath, Mr. Hinton, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you so much.